All right, everybody, good evening. It's about time to get started tonight. We are in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation 3, starting in verse number 6. Sorry, verse 7. Revelation 3, verse 7. Our goal is to finish chapter 3, and maybe, if you're good, we'll do chapter 4, but we'll leave that up to you guys. We're definitely going to try and finish chapter 3. Revelation 3, starting in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, and he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. As you know, as we've been going through this, every time we start a new discussion to a church, Jesus always has some way of introducing himself some specific particular kind of way, which usually gives us a teaser about how he's going to address this church, how he's going to deal with them. So let's see if we can find that as we go through this. But let's notice the description he gives of himself. Um, first of all, just a quick, I mean, very short bio about the city. Philadelphia, not Philly, the city of brotherly love, which is anything but these days. Um, but Philadelphia Classical, Asia Minor Philadelphia, is still around today. It just doesn't go by that name. It goes by the name Alashir in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And this is, of the churches listed here, it's one where Jesus has nothing negative to say, not even implicit. There is just nothing negative, and there's no rebuke, mild or severe. He just has nothing but encouragement for them. So let's see that as he introduces himself to them as the one who is holy, uh, set apart from other men, other gods, other creeds, whatever. He that is true, not just not a liar, not just a true teller, but he that is um, reliable, he that is verifiable, he that is uh, trustworthy in general, and he that has the key of David. And then before you could even start to wrap your head around that, he gives more information, which helps us to decipher it. He says, who has the key that can open doors that are locked and unlock doors that are open and so forth. He gives you the big, long description about opening and shutting and locking and unlocking, which if you want to get confused, then all you got to do is zoom in past the forest, past the tree, and just start micro-examining the leaves. And you get so deep into it that you completely miss the big picture. Remember, as I said last week or the week before, the best commentary on Revelation is your Bible, the 65 books before it. Do you remember when Jesus is delegating authority to the apostles, and he says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom? Now, that is definitely a phrase that would have been known by the readers of this book. They would have been able to make the association between keys and authority. Well, in that case, Matthew 16, Jesus was giving them keys, and then he clarifies, and he says, whatever you bind will be bound, whatever you loose will be loosed. In other words, I am delegating to you authority to handle spiritual matters as Christian ambassadors of Christ. Well, here you have Jesus himself taking upon himself a position of authority, saying, I have the key of David. Well, what is your connotation when you think of David? What comes to mind when you try to connect Jesus and David? Is it not the Messiah? Is it not the uh, royal lineage? So here you have, I think, a picture of Jesus as the royal fulfillment of the messianic prophecy of David. He is the son of David, the coming one of David, who has the authority to do and not do, to open and shut. And he'll exercise that authority, as we see throughout the book, but even here as we deal with these churches. Now, it's, it would be so easy, and teachers, they get down this rabbit hole, and they spend 45 minutes on all the different things the keys could mean. And they'll open up all these commentaries. 
I don't want to do that because it's boring, number one. It doesn't teach the text, number two. It just teaches you what other people said about it. I would rather you just, I'd rather just pitch you, here's what I think it means, kind of get the big picture overview, and then just move on with our lives, all right? Otherwise, we'll be here for 16 years, and we only have 12 more weeks or so, all right? So he is the one who has the key that his messianic nature gives him to have the authority to do whatever he's going to do. Now to them, he says, verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I want you to remember what I said a minute ago. Jesus' description about himself to each one of these churches gives us a hint about how he's going to deal with them. Well, what's he going to say to this church about whom he has no rebukes? How is his description as the key holder uh, going to tie into the church of Philadelphia about whom he has nothing but negative to say? Well, notice the way he says it here in verse 8. I have set before you an open door. I wonder who unlocked that door. I have set before you an unlocked open door. You can freely walk into it. Now, he doesn't tell you what's on the other side of it, but we can assume, based on what he said to all the other churches, what's on the other side of it is victory, satisfaction, eternal bliss, a victory after overcoming, as you'll say later in the text. So I've unlocked this door. I've left it open for you, and no one can shut it. Well, I mean, except Jesus, obviously, that's implied. But no one else can shut it. No one can stop you from going through this door, which we presume leads to victory. You have a little strength. That's not a, that's not a diss. That's him saying you have, um, you've done a lot with very little. Uh, a little as much when God is in it, as we like to say. And you've kept my word and not denied my name, which is something that cannot be said about so many of these churches we've already looked at. So look how he continues. Verse 9. Behold... I will make them of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved thee. This is Revelation 3, verse 9. You have, again, zoom out, big picture. Let's get the forest first. This is a, a, a reminder to this church that if you hang on and stay faithful and go through that door, you will be champions. You will be the victor. You will, you will be the one who has supremacy over your enemy. In the book of Revelation, that's the way that it's written. Don't take it literally. He's not literally promising them that if you stick with me, then all your enemies will bow down and worship you. I mean, that's what he says, but you're not supposed to take Revelation literally. This is, this is laced with metaphor and innuendo and, and analogy. So he's giving you a picture of what victory looks like. If I was watching a conqueror have victory, what does it look like? Well, his subdued people that he has defeated are going to be falling at his feet begging for mercy. He's telling these Christians who are persecuted that that's what you'll get to enjoy. You'll get to enjoy the victory that the Roman Empire is currently enjoying over the whole world. And who specifically does he single out as their enemy? He calls them the synagogue of Satan, synagogue of Satan, who say they're Jews, but are not really. So you have these people who say they are Jews. Well, what would that be metaphorically? You have these people who say they are God's people. You have these people who claim allegiance to God, but they are not really God's people. Their synagogue is not holy. It's a satanic synagogue. It doesn't mean they're literally worshiping Satan. Metaphor, not literal. He's saying they are, well, I mean, they are, I guess, technically worshiping Satan, but they don't have like the goat statue, that kind of thing. They are giving the impression of, of piety. They're giving the impression of spirituality, but they're actually serving the evil master. And maybe they're corrupting other people and you're standing against them. This is not the first time he's mentioned synagogue of Satan. The last time he did, the church was following along with them. Well, here, they're staying against them. Verse 10. It's, it's usually right around here where he would say, nevertheless, I have somewhat against you, or but. But he doesn't say that. He just keeps going with the praise. 
verse 10. But because you have kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Hard times are coming, but you who are faithful will survive. You who endure will make it. You who stay true to the one who described himself as true earlier in this text will be rewarded. Those other churches that are wavering, if they fall off the cliff, they will not be rewarded. But you, Philadelphia, you've been good. Stay good. Stay true. Stay faithful. And you'll be rewarded. Tough times are coming, but what does he say in the middle of the verse? I will keep you from the hour of temptation. Your Bible might say trial. I will let you survive. I will help you get through. As the song says, be not dismayed, whate'er be tied. God will take care of you. That's the promise he's given to them. There's, there's a great judgment coming to the world. And as we'll see throughout the book of Revelation, the world is usually a stand-in specifically for the Roman Empire, who was, to those who are the enemy of the Roman Empire, the world, basically. Well, the world's going to fall. You stay true, and you'll endure. Verse 11. Behold, I come quickly, Jesus says. Hold that fast which you have. Hold fast the thing that you have, that no one takes your crown. Behold, I come quickly. Now, to Sardis, he said that, but that was a threat. If you don't get your act together, behold, I will come suddenly, and you'll regret it, because you won't be ready. To Philadelphia, it's not a threat. It's a word of reassurance. They're enduring. They're hanging on. They're being faithful. Don't worry. I'm coming. It's going to be okay. Just hang on a little longer. And how do they hang on? He tells you at the end of verse 11, hold fast to what you have. What do they have? What is their assurance that they'll, they'll make it at the end? Their faith, their salvation, their reliance on Jesus Christ. You hold on to that, no one's taking your crown. Implication, you can put that down and someone can take your crown, but the devil can't make you give up your crown of victory that was mentioned in chapter 2, verse 10. The devil can't make you give up your salvation. All the devil can do is lie to you and convince you to hand it over as he did Adam and Eve. So he could lie and he could convince you, but it's still your choice. What Jesus is saying is, you held on to that. You hang on to your crown. And as we'll get to the next chapter, you can cast it at his feet. A champion. Chapter 3, verse 12. Him that overcomes, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I'll write upon him my new name. Hang on, endure, be faithful, and you will be made a pillar. A thing which holds up a critical component of the temple of God. Now again, best commentary in Revelation, 65 books that preceded it. So if I'm a Christian reading this in the first century and I hear the phrase temple of God, one of two things are going to come to mind. Old Testament temple, New Testament temple. One of the advantages of being the last book written is you've already read the other 26 books that make the New Testament, or that comprise the New Testament. So you're already going to have read, presumably, 1 Corinthians. So you're already going to have an apostolic understanding of what the temple of God is, and that is you, your body, is like the temple of God. Your body is a kind of the Old Testament temple. It's a type anti-type thing. The Old Testament temple was a physical structure in which the Spirit of God resided, so the people knew he had fellowship with them. The New Testament temple is you and me. You and me. And so you are a, a kind of temple in whom God resides. 
Well, those are the two connotations that I have. Which one makes more sense in this context? The Old Testament variety. Because he's talking about, metaphorically, a physical building that has pillars and that has people residing therein. So he's talking about the, the connotation to draw from it is the Old Testament kind of temple. And so he says, you who overcome will be like a pillar of the old temple. And you'll be in that temple and no one's going out of it. Well, who's going to keep it from going out of it? The one who has the key to lock the door. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. Where was the old temple located? Old Jerusalem. Where is this new temple located? Spiritual, this new spiritual temple. Where is it located? New Jerusalem. What is this new Jerusalem? Well, what does he say about it? He says it comes down out of heaven from my God. He says it comprises those people upon whom God has written his name. So the new Jerusalem is a city of God belonging to the people of God who wear the name of God. What's that sound like? Who are the people of God? Class? Christians. Christians wearing the name Christian, right? And where do we reside? In a spiritual dwelling place. A spiritual kingdom, a spiritual temple, you might even say. In fact, you don't even have to. Paul said it first. That you are comprised and made up of a holy temple to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2. So he is describing here the church, but not just any kind of the church, not just any form of the church. He is describing the church glorified, vindicated, eternally saved. The church that has endured, that has survived the hardship that, Philip, uh, that uh, Philadelphia is enduring. And that if you endure, church, then you will get to be a pillar of this grand temple. And you get to have your name written on, my name written on you as, these, as the people of God, as this new Jerusalem. Now they are the church now, but he's looking at what kind of church they will be. A vindicated church, a victorious church who has survived and endured. And this new Jerusalem is going to come up later in the book. And it's going to be a city that comes out of heaven. I emphasize that because we have the temptation to say, the new Jerusalem, that must be heaven. Heaven can't come out of heaven. That just don't work. Something comes out of heaven, as God's kingdom does. Verse 13, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A phrase which we've heard every time we've talked to these churches, and every time it draws to our mind, what's the conclusion? What am I supposed to think? What's the lesson to learn? Well, how do you give a lesson from a church that's got no problems? The lesson is, be like Philadelphia. Be faithful in hard times. Verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen. Is that what your Bible says? These things says the amen? Good. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Laodicea, it's important to know because the Christians reading this would have known, was a very wealthy city. Laodicea was the financial epicenter of Asia Minor. It was also very famous for its medical school, wherein they developed uh, treatments for tinnitus, the ringing of the ears, and eye strain. So if you stay up all night because the ringing in your ears, they can solve both of your problems. That was what they were famous for. You might think that's just anecdotal. Why do I need to know that? Well, just hold on to your horses. Let's see how Jesus introduces himself, though, to these people. He says, I am the thy will be done. He says, I am the so be it God. My Bible says the amen. That's what it means. I am the not punctuation at the end of your prayer. That's not what amen is. Amen is not the magic word you use to let God know you're done talking to him. Amen means something. Amen means everything that I said, so be it. If it be your will, let it be done. 
That's what amen means. I am the, Jesus says, the living embodiment of God's will being done. That's a powerful descriptor. I am, next, the faithful and true witness, which means if I call it, it's going to be a spade. I'm going to call a spade a spade. If you're good, I'm going to call you good. If you're bad, I'm going to call you bad. I'm going to be a faithful and true witness to what you've done. Reliable. You can take it to the bank. And, he says, he is the beginning of the creation of God. Not the first one created, but the one at the beginning of creation. John 1.3. Without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus, who was in the beginning, was before the beginning. Jesus created the beginning. And that's how he describes himself. And to the Laodiceans, he says this, verse 15. One of the more famous, if not the most famous, maybe tied with chapter 2, verse 10, statement from these seven churches. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I would rather you be cold or hot. And we love to analyze and overanalyze the first part of that, and we're oftentimes bewildered by the second part of that. So let's just take it in parts. What does he say? I know your works. The faithful and true witness has seen what they've done, and now he's going to give a report. I've seen what you've done, and I've seen you as a people neither cold nor hot. And as we'll learn in the next verse, as we already know, he describes him later as lukewarm. That's what you call him, neither cold nor hot. So you're lukewarm. You're neither cold. Let me illustrate it for you. You ought to see cold, hot. That should be a W. Lukewarm. Okay? So you are neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. But then he says, I would rather you be cold or hot, right? Isn't that the end of the verse in your Bibles? So look at this. You have cold and hot, the two extremes. Which one is good and which one is bad? Which one's good? Hot. Okay, we're going to put that check mark. Call that good. Which one is bad? Oh. I disagree. Frank, I disagree. Who's bad in this text? Laodicea is bad. What is Laodicea? They're not cold. They're lukewarm. Lukewarm in this text is what's bad. Which is why it's no contradiction for Jesus to say, I'd be okay with you being cold. See, our mind immediately goes to hot, good, cold, bad. But let's try to interpret it through the way Jesus describes it. Lukewarm is bad. So what does that mean about cold? It means he would rather a person be vehemently against him than a person who has no interest in him at all. Obviously, I think he doesn't say, but I think we can all agree, he would rather you be on fire. But if you were ice cold, he would prefer that to lukewarm. Why? Because I recall a man who persecuted the church zealously. Paul was not one who said, I don't care if Christians live or die. Paul was one who said, I will make it my mission to make sure they die. And Jesus took that zeal and simply redirected it. He took that fervent desire to go the opposite way and turn him the right way. Had he been laying here, he would have been like the soldier who didn't want to shoot anybody and got shot by both sides. He took the person who wanted to fight and he just gave him a new enemy, the devil. Fight on this team, not this one. I would rather you be here or here because at least I could do something with you. But instead, you're here. You're in the middle. You're lukewarm. Next verse. And because you're lukewarm, like nobody wants lukewarm soup, I will spew you, he says, out of my mouth. Lukewarm, is, by the way, doesn't just mean they don't care about Jesus. Lukewarm means they don't care about anything. He, can't, he doesn't see in them any works of zeal at all. He says, I've seen your works. I've seen what you've done and how you've done all your works apathetically. How you're not putting any interest into it. You don't seem to care at all about any of it. And so because of that, I've got no use for you. I'll spit you out. Verse 17, what's their problem? 
They're fat, they're rich, and they're lazy. Because you say, I am rich, I am increased with goods, I got storehouses full of stuff to live off of. I have no need of anything. And he says, you don't even realize that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, if the Laodicean average person looked at himself in the mirror, he would see a person who was well-fed, well-stocked, and well-dressed. But with divine eyes, the faithful and true witness says, I see a person who is naked, wretched. That word wretched means pitiable. I feel sorry for you, in other words. The kind of things that we would think about someone if we crossed a beggar on the street who was impoverished and, and um, you know, dirty and their ribs were sticking out of their, their body. We would feel bad. I would feel pity on them. That's what Jesus says to these people. I feel sorry for you because you have let your worldly riches, you rich city of Laodicea, corrupt your zeal and your soul to work. Verse 18, what does he want? I want you to convert that heavy bank account to a life that has been tried in the fire. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Oh, but look how big my bank account is. Yeah, it's full of gold that's been handed over from corrupt bankers. But I want a different kind of gold. I want you to have a gold, a spiritual gold, that has been put through the fire and has endured and has burned away the imperfection. It's come out stronger so that you could be rich in a spiritual way. Because they're already rich in a worldly way, and that means nothing to Jesus. He says, I see you as poor. So that you can wear white raiment, not your rich, fancy purple clothing, but wear the pure white clothing. Because you wear your fat cat clothes, and you look naked to me. You're missing something. You're missing the essential spiritual clothing of a white raiment, a, a gown of purity, spiritual. I want you to be clothed. That your shame of your nakedness is no longer present. So that your eyes can have a salve put on it. Oh, you can go to the market and lay out a seed. You can buy your, your eye drops for when you get your pink eye. But Jesus says, you have spiritual pink eye. And I've got the, the medicine for you. Right now, you can't see a thing. It's all swollen shut. But I have the balm, the salve, to heal you. Hey, listen, calm down. Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Hebrews 12, 7. What kind of father would he be? If he did not chasten his children, he would not be a father who loves. What kind of Jesus would he be? He would not be a savior that loves if he doesn't spank his children when they do bad. So here he's giving them a verbal talking to. And he says, if you don't straighten up, behold, I come quickly with a paddle. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. What a great directive. What a great imperative from the Lord to these lukewarm people. These people who don't know the meaning of the word zeal. Well, I need to repent. Okay, you need to repent. What does repent mean? Change your mind or change your action. What, do they, what action do they need to change? Apathy. So be zealous and repent. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice, if, big conditional word, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Th this is not deep metaphorical apocalyptic writing. We should all understand, I would think, the, the connotation that comes with sitting down having a meal with somebody. It's an expression of fellowship. It's an illustration of relationship. To break bread with someone. Right now, Jesus is being excluded. He's on the other side of the door, and the door is shut. And even though He has the key, as we learned previously, He's not going to force His way in. 
if someone comes to the door, and if they open the door, and if they invite me in, then I will break bread with them, and we can have fellowship again. Ball's in your court. He can't make you be faithful. If you want to be, he's ready to go. Which is why I push back against that meme, if you've seen it, that picture of Jesus, the famous illustration of him at the door knocking, and someone put the caption over it, um, let me in, as if Jesus is saying it, and then inside they're saying, why? So I don't punish you for not letting me in, which is a very cynical callous way of thinking about judgment and and the actions of God. God does not take over your body and force you to do things. He's given you the opportunity to be saved from your own crimes. We need to start looking at it that way. Start blaming him when he's a loving father who spanks us. Verse 21. To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I have overcome and am set down with my father in his throne. If I overcome, if I endure, if I uh, am victorious over this fight against the devil, ultimately, then what Jesus promises me is that I get to sit with him on his throne. Now, if he's on his throne, I can assume all his enemies will be cast down at his feet. And if I'm on his throne, won't they be at my feet too? That doesn't help explain the previous reference to people falling down at your feet. It's not because you're so special. It's because he is, and he invited you up there. 22. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, what does the Spirit say to this one? I want you to be on fire. And I would want you working hard. Even if you, d- you discover you've been doing the wrong thing, at least you've been doing it wholeheartedly so that you can be taught the Scripture and know to turn around and put the same amount of effort into doing what is right. I, just, I don't want you laying down and relaxing. But what if it's a pandemic, Jesus? Can we relax then? No. Sorry, right there. It says no. Chapter 4, Revelation 4. After this, a phrase which appears a few other times in this book. It'll come up in chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 7. Yeah, chapter 7, chapter 18, chapter 19. It, it, it basically just means, and now for something different. And now let's just, let's, let's start a new section. So it's a way of John saying, he's not saying in time has passed. That's the way Moses would have used after these things or after this. The way John uses it is to mean, it's like the, the diorama has changed. The curtain has closed and a new curtain opens. It's a whole new play before me to see in the spectacle of Revelation. So we add that previous uh, appearance. Remember, way back, we started two weeks ago, how he be- looks and behold, and there's Jesus with his white hair, and he's got the eyes of fire, and he's got the stars in his hand, and he's surrounded by all these, these um, the tiki torches of fellowship, basically, of the seven churches of Asia. So that was the one scene that he saw. And then he's going to enter into a new scene. He's going to see something else and describe it for us. Notice how that is kind of introduced in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. To quote a wise man, from this point on, we leave the thickets and the mercy mark wood of guesswork and plunder into... uh, Oh, we leave the, the... I wrote it down. It's Dumbledore's quote. We leave the firm foundation of fact and jumble together into the murky marshes of wildest guesswork. It's all fun and games. Everyone loves chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 4 is where preachers go to die because this is where it gets really wild and really crazy. But we're going to get through it together by following the simple recipe we talked about a couple weeks ago. We're going to have a big picture understanding, zoom in as much as we can before our head starts to hurt, and then bail. All right? We're not going to fight, we're not going to quibble, we're not going to throw stones over the details. We're not going to argue over the leaves on the trees of the forest. We're going to all agree on the forest, we're going to figure out the trees, and proceed with caution.
First of all, John says, a door in heaven, a door in the sky was opened. Doors in the sky are not doors, so your Bible probably says an opening. Maybe it says a window. That's a better translation. There is an opening in heaven, in the sky, above me. And I can't imagine what that looks like. And I'm going to say that a lot. And then he hears a voice, which he describes as like a trumpet. In fact, he calls it the first voice. The voice he heard before that. If you remember, he heard Jesus' voice like a trumpet. And so here again is Jesus speaking to him on the other side of that opening saying, come up here and see the things that are going to come to pass. So he hears this voice like a trumpet, connotation of trumpet, alarm, alert, call to attention, focus. Stuff's about to go down and you need to be there to record it. So that's what John's going to do. The things which will be hereafter. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, the things which are, and now the things which are soon to be. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. Inspiration has come upon him, and he's going to write the things that the Spirit is allowing him to behold. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Well, wait, I thought there were a bunch of people sitting on the throne. Isn't that what Jesus said in the previous chapter? We're in a whole new play, all right? After that comes a new play. So we're reset, start over, new scene. In this new scene, I climb up this opening, and I enter this new domain, and he says it is heaven, but as we'll see as we go through this, he's really seeing a glorified version of the temple, very similar to what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, which I don't think is a coincidence, and to work that backwards, I think the reason the temple is designed the way it's designed is because I think that's a physical approximation of how God wants us to perceive his heavenly throne, with angels surrounding it, like the angels etched onto the uh, fabric of the cloth that separates holy from most holy place, with the light of God's radiance put there in the form of the menorah. So you have these physical representations so that when the priest goes in, he's like he's going in to commune with God who sits on his throne in the most holy place on the Ark of the Covenant mercy seat. Just like Isaiah is called up, and here John is called up to see God on his throne in heaven. So it's like he's going into the temple of the Old Testament only splendiferite, made splendiferous. So behold, there was a throne set in heaven, and one set on it, whom we know, without even knowing it, is God. Verse 3. And he that sat on the throne was to look upon like, that's a lot of simile words, was to look upon like a jasper. He is not seeing a jasper stone. He's not seeing a giant precious stone. He's seeing someone who, the best he could describe it, was like it's like looking at a jasper. Or it's like looking at a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, and the side of it was like emerald. So I guess I should use green. Even though he's not looking at a big giant green rock, it's just that's the way he's describing it. He's using precious gemstones to draw our minds to certain connotations. So you've got a throne, all right? Let's just pretend that's a throne, okay? And surrounding the throne, I'm not going to do all six colors, but there's a whole circle of a rainbow. Not just the little half rainbow that we might see, not even the double rainbow, but the whole, he sees the whole circle of the full spectrum before him. But I have the 65 books that precede this book to be my commentary. So what do I, the Bible reader, think when I think rainbow? I don't think homosexuality. What do I think? I think the promise of God. And I see the full completion of the circle. I see the promise. I see what I need to see 
as a persecuted Christian who's been told to hang on. I see God's promise personified. So I see this throne. And it has, I need the red probably. You've got jasper, which I don't even know what color it is. But I do know that when you put jasper up to the light, it catches the light and it sparkles. It shines, it shimmers. So he sees something, and the first thing he sees when he sees the person on the throne is he's just shimmering. He's radiating. Okay, divine. Divine radiance, as we already described Jesus previously. But he also sees something that reminds him of a sardine. Not the, not the fish. The, am I, I might even be pronouncing it right. Does your Bible say sardine, S-A-R-D-I-N-E? Sardius? Well, mine says sardine, so King James thought of fish, but... Whatever it is, it is, someone's phone ringing, whatever it is, it is a red, fiery-looking stone, okay? Well, when I think of God, who we presume is on the throne, and I think of fire, and I put those two thoughts together, maybe I think of Deuteronomy 4, and the fiery vengeance of God, is this described? So I'm think, I see a picture of God's radiance. I see a picture of God's uh, fiery justice, but also the whole of it is emerald, which is a soft, soft, uh, gentle uh, look to it. So maybe, and again, we're just, I'm just spitballing. I'm just moving puzzle pieces around, right? You have the fieriness of God's judgment and the softness, maybe, of God's mercy. I don't know. And neither does anybody else. This is just what we think. All right? So don't nobody go say, well, this guy's commentary says, I don't really care. All right? This is what my class says. I think it's fiery justice and mercy overriding it. All of which is wrapped around God's promise keeping. That's what he sees. The sight of it was like unto an emerald. Verse 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold, which I won't even try. It doesn't take too long. But surrounding the throne, whether they're inside or outside the ark of this rainbow, I don't know, but there are twenty-four other thrones with 24 other people sitting on 24 other thrones with 24 other crowns. Well, that sounds like royalty. But I wouldn't dare call them kings because he opens with one spectacular-looking throne and one sitting on it. I'd be inclined to call that the king. So what do you call someone else who's not the king sitting on thrones with a crown? Maybe a prince? Maybe children of the king who get to inherit the king's throne? King's kingdom in an earthly sense? Isn't that the way he's been describing Christianity? Isn't that the way he's been describing God's people? So John is looking and he's seeing 24 of them. What's 24? Well, in my mind, I immediately want to split that, 12 and 12. And I would think 12 tribes, and I would think 12 apostles. But that wouldn't just stop there. I would remember that, yes, in the Old Testament, God's people were 12 tribes. But in the New Testament, God's people are also called the 12 tribes. James 1, verse 1. So I would make that connection if I'm looking back to the Old Testament to the Bible previous to this book. And I would, see, um, I would see John, if I'm looking through his eyes, I would be seeing this grand scene surrounding him are the representations of Old Testament and New Testament. Surrounding him are the people of God, as they've been depicted throughout the years. All wearing crowns, not crowns that are inherent to them, that's God's crown, but crowns they have been given. Crowns they have not earned, but crowns they have been blessed with. These are the kinds of people we talked about in the previous two chapters. Him that overcomes, I will give a crown. And now, what's the next thing John sees? People who've been given crowns. And they're given the, I know they're given the crowns because they throw them down to the one who's in the center. 
They're not their crowns. They were given to them and they give them back. Not earned, thus thrown back. Round about them were these four and twenty seats with four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, white raiment, purity. They're uh, covered, as we just talked about in the previous church, cleansed, and on their heads crowns of gold. Next verse. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. The King James says voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We've had a similar look at that. Seven lights, seven uh, lampstands in the early part of the book. It's a little bit different here, but it's drawn the same kind of conclusion to mind. In fact, here and there, they're both called the seven spirits of God, which I think is pretty clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit, and I'll explain why in just a second. But he says, out of the throne proceeds lightning and thundering and the booming of noise. The King James says voices, but it's phoneo in the Greek. It sounds. So it could be a bunch of different words being said. It could be one word being said by a bunch of people. It could just be a sound. We don't know yet. We'll find out in a minute that it's the sound of angels saying, holy, 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 just like Isaiah heard in Isaiah chapter 6. But he is just hearing this cacophony of sounds. Out of it proceeds these lightnings and these thunderings too. It reminds me of Exodus, and God is preparing the law for the people. And in Exodus, you're looking up at Sinai, the way the book is written, and you're seeing the terror on the people's faces as they hear from below the terrible sounds coming from there. John is up on the top. John is getting it from the heavenly vantage point, the source of the lightning and the source of the thunder and the source of the voices. He is in the, the heart of heaven itself, and he sees these lamps of fire, seven lamps, a complete number throughout the book of Revelation, burning the seven spirits of God. Throughout the Bible, God's Holy Spirit is called a light or even a fire that illuminates. Psalm 119, 105, Thy word, the Spirit-inspired word, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Daniel 5, 14, the Holy Spirit's inspiration is called illumination, the clarity to see and to know, like light in front of you. Uh, Hebrews 6, verse 4, Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews, calls it being enlightened, by the Holy Spirit. And so here you have that personified in an apocalyptic way. The Holy Spirit represented by lights burning around the throne of God. Verse number 6, chapter 4. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like as crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before, that is to say in front, and behind, that is to say behind them. So here before him he sees the sparkling sea like it was crystal. Not actually crystal. Like it was a sea of glass the King James says. Your Bible might say crystal or something like that. So he sees this glassy sea. Uh, look, any of you who've been outdoorsy enough, I've Google imaged, okay? If you've been out, you've seen what a body of water looks like when it is turbulent and you've seen the serenity of a still lake, right? And the calmness that is there. He sees this throne almost like an island set atop this still, motionless sea. Not moving, not turbulent, not anxious peace. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne, that is to say, right dead center and orbiting around, are four beasts with eyes in the front and eyes in the back. And that's a scary thought. But let's keep going. 
the first beast was like what? A lion. We're going to be crude here. Not vulgar, I mean ugly. All right? The first beast is like a lion. The second beast is like what? An ox. My Bible says calf, but I'll take ox. It actually means a heifer, a young one. So I'm going to put little bitty horns. Is that okay, Ryan? Can I do that? Yeah, that'll be all right. All right? The next one is what? The third had the face of a man. And we'll give him a beard and we'll keep him bald. In fact, we'll even give him glasses. All right? And the fourth one was like what? Oh, let's not make the same mistake that I just made because this is a flying eagle, not just an eagle perched, which has two very different connotations. So let's just have some fun here. What do you think of? The, the psychiatrist says, what do you think of when you see lion? What do you think of? What does lion conjure up in your mind? King? Oh, that's interesting. What else? Glory? Roaring. Okay, well, let's play on that. Roar. What, what, what is, keep going with that. Dominus? If you hear a roar, what do you think? Are you happy about it or are you scared about it? I'm, let's use the word that I want to use, which is ferocity. All right? Oh, no, you know what? Even better than ferocity. How about this? If you enter a lion's domain and he roars, you're not going to assume you're going to win the fight because a lion, from your perspective, is um. Nip o tent. All right, let's just use that word just for the fun of it, okay? The next one was uh, heifer. Not a full grown cow or oxen, because that would have a connotation of labor, of use, of work. But this is young, small, a sacrifice, right? They, didn't, they, didn't they sacrifice these kind of animals in the Old Testament? They did. So let's use that. Let's say sacrifice. And what about the face of a man? Well, handsome. Intelligent? No. No. Let's just, let's just keep it as human. Let's just call a spade a spade there. And then finally, an eagle perched, which this one is not, but let's just pretend. An eagle perched conjures up the image of stoicism and meditation, contemplation. But this is not an eagle perched. This is an eagle soaring. This is an eagle flying. So what does that come to mind? What do you think of there? An eagle that's flying overall. What do you think of? Searching? Okay. If it's searching, why is it flying? What, is, what advantage does flying give it, Charles? Yeah, yeah, but why would it fly to look for something? It could see everything. Well, let's call that what that is. What would you call that? Well, that's not how you spell omniscience, so I'll just scribble. scribble. Omniscience, all right? So here are four beasts that conjure up, in my interpretation... Four particular striking images. An image of omnipotence. An image of sacrifice. An image of omniscience. An image of humanity. I am not saying, don't nobody get ahead of me, that these four beasts, any one or the whole, are Jesus Christ. Because they're not. They will very clearly be identified as angels in a moment. What I'm saying is that these are specific angels designed to reflect Jesus Christ. That by seeing these four specific-looking angels, unlike any angels we'll ever see before or since, that they are meant to evoke what is so special about Jesus. If I could put a theme on this chapter, it is Jesus is the one. He is what is special. He is the one who's going to unlock the power of your victory that this book is about. And who is Jesus? 
Well, he is omnipotent. He is omniscient. That is, he can do anything. He can see anything. He is a human sacrifice. Incidentally, Jesus, when he was just Jesus the man, born of Mary, lived and died on a cross, he was a man, right? A man with divine, um, divine miraculous ability could do anything, and we saw that demonstrated in his ministry, and could know anything, and we've seen that demonstrated in his ministry. He could read minds, and he could heal people. Two examples of omnipotence and omniscience. But what Jesus, as a man, could not be is what is not represented on this chart. What is that? He's omnipotent, he's omniscient, but he was not omnipresent because he was a man. And as we learn in Philippians 2, he gave up his divine nature to become a man. Well, with that comes the fact that you're a person and you are where you are at a fixed point in time. You're made of matter. God, who is a spirit, can be anywhere. God's mind can know anything. God's power can do anything. But God, in a form of a man, he is at Jerusalem, not at Galilee. As we saw at his resurrection, he could warp speed there if he wanted to. He could hop around. He hopped around all over the place after his resurrection. But he still went from one place to another, one place at a time. He was not omnipresent. So I think it's interesting that you have these animals, none of which really would conjure up the idea of omnipresence, but they do conjure up, in my mind, omnipotence and omniscience. And also you have an idea of sacrifice and humanity. To me, this is the sum total of who Jesus was. This is the amen, as we talked about earlier. And so what John is looking at are four specific angels, each one who have a part to play to evoke, to demonstrate, to live the praises of what is so special about Jesus. You may have a different interpretation, but it's my class. Verse number eight. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, which I will not draw. And there were eyes. The wings were full of eyes within. Imagine seeing that spectacle. And they did not rest day and night. Well, we have to assume that's a metaphor because there is no day-night cycle in the heavenly throne. And they constantly said, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Same refrain that Isaiah heard when he was called up to see the throne and get his commission to preach in Isaiah 6. They continually, ceaselessly praise God. And if, you, if, if this interpretation is even halfway right, they, they specifically praise the omnipotence of Jesus, the omniscience of Jesus, the, sacrifi the sacrifice of Jesus, and the humanity of Jesus in the midst of also praising God's eternal holiness. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, let's not forget, surrounding these are surrounding and orbiting around the one sitting on the throne. Who's the one sitting on the throne? The king. So they, they ceaselessly praise him and they give glory and honor and thanks to him that sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. These angels are not divine. That is to say, they're not God. They are divinely made, divinely there to serve a divine purpose, but they themselves are not inherently divine. They give glory, they exalt, lift up. They give honor, revere, esteem highly. And they give thanks, express gratitude. God does not do that to self. He receives it. Part of the reason why he made the angelic host, part of the reason, was to receive praise and glory from the same. So what are they being thankful for? What are they thanking him for? Being made, I would assume. 
So the divine sits on the throne, and the angels sing to the divine, to the, to the one who has glory forever and ever, the eternal one. Verse number 10. The four and twenty elders, the twenty-four elders, fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, dot, dot, dot. But let's, we'll get there in a second. Look at verse 10 again. Those 24 elders that we previously saw, they were previously sitting on 24 thrones. That's a place of honor. Wearing 24 crowns. That's the thing of honor. But what did they do? When the angelic host starts singing praises to God, or when John tunes into it, because they're always doing it, at that moment like a play when the next thing happens. The next thing that happens is, when they're worshiping him that lives forever and ever, and that's God, they take off their crowns before the throne and they say, verse number 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Who, to whom are they singing? Not just God in the generic sense, but specifically Jesus. He is the one sitting on the throne. And who was it at the beginning of this chapter that beckoned John to come up? But the voice he heard before, the voice like a trumpet. Who was calling him to attention? Who was telling him, come up and focus on this? But Jesus himself. He wants John, and who wrote it, therefore he wants us to see him on this throne. It's not enough just to casually remember, oh yeah, he's the king, so he's on a throne. I need to understand the power of that. When I am being persecuted, I need to remember that I have a champion, that I have a king on my side who, as he did with Stephen, looks down and sees the persecution of his people. It is not just some random person who sees me suffering. It is a king who is worthy to receive all glory, all honor, and all power, all authority given to him. That's the one who sees me suffering. And so that makes me sleep a little easier because he also says, Romans 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Well, how do I know he'll keep his word? Because he receives all glory, all honor, and all power. And he sees, like an eagle soaring above, he sees me suffering. So these persecuted Christians, if you ask them on a test, they'd fill in the blank and they know, yes, Jesus is the king. But this whole chapter was there to remind them that he is the one capable of getting them through this hardship. These 24 elders, there are, they, they represent the victory, the victory that the rest of the Christians are hoping to receive. And what does it look like? They take off their crowns and they say to him, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. And for your pleasure they are and were created. These, as we'll learn later, some of these and those who we'll, we'll meet later are ones who've been persecuted, who've suffered, and who've died. And they say to him, these people who've already gone before me, like I'm in a line and I see what's at the end of the line is someone getting his head chopped off. And the next person, he's going to get his chopped off. And I'm looking, I'm counting. Well, it's just a few minutes away and I'm going to get my head chopped off. And I can run or I can go. And I can sing merrily on my way to the chopping block. And what I'm hearing from these people who've already got their head chopped off, I'm hearing them singing and I'm hearing them say, I am so thankful that you made me. For your pleasure you made me so that I could die for you. What a great privilege I have. I'm hearing them say that when I'm reading Revelation or I'm calling it to mind when it's my turn to go to the chopping block. How God's saints are thankful that they get to die. 
and makes it real hard for me to complain then when my turn is next. That's the power of Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 4. Jesus is still the king even when you suffer. He is still the king while you suffer. And he will still be the king when your suffering is over. But as we learned in the previous chapters, which is why they came first, you must be faithful. Or all your suffering will be worthless and the worst will be yet to come. That's Revelation chapter 4. Any comments or questions from anybody that has nothing to do with this part? We have, um, I mean, eight minutes, but I'm not going to tell. No, because I didn't write that part down. But it's a very good illustration. You may look that up yourselves, class. Ezekiel also is the other one. Um, Isaiah doesn't really go too much into it. I can't mention that one. The only thing we get out of Isaiah was he hears the angels saying, holy, holy, holy. And he describes them. I think they were seraphs. They might have been the cherubs. I don't remember. But he describes them as angels that have wings that fly, wings that cover their feet, and wings that cover their face. So they would look like something like that. But we don't see them covering themselves in Revelation. And that's, that's not important, but it's, you might think, well, how come they're covering their bodies? They, they cover their feet because ground is holy. They cover their wings so they can fly around the throne. They cover their face because God's majesty is unbeholdable. Well, if that's the case in Isaiah, why are they not covering their face? they got their wings spread out so we can see all those freaky eyeballs. Why are they not doing it in Revelation? Because Revelation is apocalyptic. Revelation is a living metaphor. It's there to convey an idea, um, which is not the idea being conveyed in Isaiah. And I don't even remember what it looks like in Ezekiel, so don't, don't do that. You're not allowed to speak anymore. All right. Anybody else who's not a preacher have a question? All right. Um, it's, it's not... Listen... If you brace yourself, if you ease into it, this is not a hard book. As I said, the very first words out of my mouth a couple weeks ago, just a second, Mark, was Revelation can be understood. We're just going to take a little time, get the big picture, and then zoom in as much as we can. Yes, Mark Skelton. Only in passing, because I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you had, we, we kind of deduced that seven is a number that represents completion, doesn't represent holiness, doesn't <clears throat> represent divine and it seems to represent like a totality of something. So you have the totality of the spirit there. Um, and since it's pictured in Revelation 4 as being in the form of illuminating light, you go back to the Old Testament and you think, well, where do we see illuminating light? And it's usually used to describe inspiration or the power of the spirit. And so from that, we deduce seven spirits as the Holy Spirit. That makes sense to you? That's, that's my take on it, at least. Um, which means that John is beholding the kingdom of God, the temple of God, with Jesus on the throne and the Spirit lighting the room. Basically, that's what you get if you walk into the temple just in a very watered-down version. He's seeing it in all its majesty, no pun intended. Any other comments or questions? All right. Next week is chapter 5, obviously. Not complicated, not hard. It gets a little weird because there's all kinds of things and people are saying, how come we can't open this book? And we're not going to understand why, but we'll figure it out. It's just a play. It's just, it's just kabuki. The whole point of it is to convey an idea. Why can't we open this book? Because Jesus hasn't come yet. And when Jesus comes, he'll be able to open the book. And so we'll understand that. But then it gets really good. Then it gets to chapter 6, and it's the four horsemen. And I cannot wait to break that stuff down. That's, that's my favorite chapter. So that's about two weeks away. So that's all I have for you guys. Thanks, y'all, very much.